Welcome to season two of My Garden, My Life, the podcast designed to inspire you to grow your relationship with your garden and yourself. I'm Sarah Layton, founder of Growthly, and my mission is to support and empower you to enhance your life and mental health by growing your ownership of that precious space outside your home. When we make space in our lives for ourselves, anything is possible. I want you to feel inspired and confident getting your hands in the soil, making the changes you want to your space and feeling the joy that comes with taking action out there. Your garden, balcony, window boxes even, can literally change your life. And what could be better than that? So today my guest is Alice Vincent, author of Rootbound, Rewilding a Life. She's a garden writer and journalist, as well as an Instagram whiz, and now gardens, as of a couple of months ago, not on the balcony we refer to here, but in her very first proper garden. Our conversation was wide-ranging across the topics of gardening and mental health, the potential the activity offers for learning about ourselves, and the politics of women in gardening, which Rootbound looks at in some detail, and we discuss the inequality that still exists. We recorded this episode back in May, however, before George Floyd's murder sparked the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I now see very clearly just how blind I was to white privilege in all its forms. Conversation since then has exposed and made clear just how widespread white privilege has been within the gardening and horticultural community and industry. And the fact that Alice and I spoke about the political nature of gardening in terms of women and didn't touch on the discrimination against black and indigenous people of colour is stark evidence of my ignorance at that time, and I deeply regret that. Although many of us might wish otherwise, gardening is political in this and other ways, and I become more and more clear about that. It just isn't okay to ignore the questions around land ownership, canonial theft, who gets to enjoy the countryside and discrimination in all its forms. And I consciously notice and question now in a way I didn't before. And I'm truly grateful for that. Learning how to look is vital in gardening, especially for someone as impatient and haste-driven as me. But the balcony supplied near-endless visual satisfaction. I'd hunt out new growth, watch the light play on leaves, catch the shadows that fell on the concrete floor. As my father did, standing by our kitchen window, I'd observe and make endless mental lists of things that needed to change, or growth I'd hoped to see while my focus fell soft and heavy. It was near impossible just to do the one quick job on the balcony. A bit of deadheading leads to watering, to tidying and pottering around until the five minutes initially allocated telescopes into hours and my hands, usually brushed roughly on whatever covers my lower half, are stiff with cold and my mind soothed. Catherine S. White, nay Angel, was the first fiction editor of The New Yorker, the woman who discovered and championed Nabokov and Updike. But she applied her gimlet eye to seed catalogues too, and at the age of 66 wrote her first gardening column, Onward and Upward in the Garden in which she treated the plantsmen and nurserymen who collated their wares and pamphlets as if they were the next literary sensations. Even though White, she married one of her protégés, E.B. White, 
changed the shape of contemporary fiction with her day job, her favourite reading matter was seed catalogues. This is a charming thing, but my favourite Catherine S. White fact is that, as her husband wrote when he published her columns in a book after her death in 1977, she had no gardening clothes and never dressed for gardening. When she paid a call on her perennial borders or her cutting bed or her rose garden, she was not dressed for the part. She, it was simply a spur of the moment escapee from the house and, in the early years, from the job of editing manuscripts. I seldom saw her prepare for gardening. She merely wandered out into the cold and wet, into the sun and the warmth, wearing whatever she had put on that morning. White would garden in a Ferragamo shoes, a handsome tweed skirt and jacket, or a spotless cotton dress. Once she was drawn into the fray, once involved in transplanting or weeding or thinning or pulling deadheads, she forgot all else. Her clothes had to take things as they came. As had, by breakfast time, my pyjamas. Balcony arthritis, cobwebs, soil dust, fallen leaves. There was nothing much to worry about, not for the satisfaction induced by my new view from the balcony door a flicker of long pointed bamboo leaves framing the left of it, a silhouette of starly lupin leaf straight ahead. The hours had run away from me. I watered everything well, left vague, optimistic instructions about the houseplants, and zipped up the red suitcase for the month ahead. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Gosh, it captures everything I love about your book. Oh, I'm glad. I hate reading it back, so I'm glad that someone enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, well... So, Alice, I think it would be good if you introduced yourself after that lovely um, reading. Uh, so, my name is Alice Vincent. I'm the author of Rootbound, Rewilding a Life. And I'm a garden writer and a journalist about all sorts of things, books and art and, and other things. And I taught myself to garden about six years ago now. Uh, and here we are now. And here we are now. And that's because I have loved reading your book and also love watching you and your balcony and really, really resonate with the sense I get of the sensuality with which you experience your garden. Mm. It's really important to me. Gardening is something that I'm not formally trained in and it's not the science of it that captivates me or um, I suppose the artistry, even it's, it's the feeling. It's how gardening makes me feel better. Uh, it is essentially the kind of the premise of Rootbound in a time when everything was very turbulent. Gardening was what made me feel better. And I'm glad that you get that sense of senses from from my account. It's interesting that it comes across. It's very much why I do it. And I think it probably comes across really strongly for me because that's exactly what I get from my own garden. And as someone who can struggle with anxiety, a tendency towards low mood or depression or getting overwhelmed. Being in my greenhouse or deadheading or, well, those are main activities, actually, <laughs> the quick ones that I go out to do it in, in emergencies. <laughs> it's transformative. My mood just changes. I, I wear gloves for gardening because I don't like having soil under my, my fingernails. It makes me not a proper gardener, I think, probably. But I put my gloves on. I have my potting box um, in my greenhouse and I stand there and pot things that maybe don't need potting on because I need to pot them on and it's just mood transforming yeah completely you've summed it up there's it's a potter I, always, I find myself using the verb 
to potter or also as a noun I'm having a potter and it always feels very whimsical and and for me gardening isn't whimsical actually it's quite political and important and visceral but the word potter very much sums up how entire days can be lost doing not very much I mean I'm a balcony gardener it should be said Uh, so the space in which I garden is relatively small it's it's about five square meters and yet I can still lose hours out there shuffling things around tending to things well in a way the small space makes it all more crucial doesn't it ugly things stick out more obviously yeah (laughs) I still say to people you know who say, oh, I can't take out that tree or I can't remove that shrub or, you know, it's growing. I had a guest, um, Elizabeth Cairns, two or three episodes ago, who has a conifer hedge she absolutely hates in her garden. And we have to disagree. We have to agree to disagree because she takes a Buddhist approach to it. I need to learn to accept it. What is it about it that upsets me so much? Um, Whereas I would just have it out. For me, it's um, there's a kind of a stacking order of, of priorities, which is I'll entertain sort of ugly or perhaps less than perfect things um, as long as nothing else needs their space more urgently. And in such a small space, frequently things do. But it is always nice to give things a chance because if you wait six months, they can suddenly burst into revival, which is always enormously gratifying. Absolutely. Oh, yes, I'm not, you know, if something's... If I've neglected a houseplant and it's on its knees, then absolutely. One of my daughter's friends um, had a little clinic for her peace lily really recently with me. Mm. We had this peace lily and it was looking incredibly unhappy. And Hannah said to me, Mum, can you just talk to her about it? <laughs> and I wanted to pull it out of its pot and we discovered that it was soaking wet and that she had been watering and watering and watering and I got her to pull off you know this is all by zoom I got her to pull off all the leaves and to get rid of the dead nasty roots and to say to keep the nice white ones and put it into fresh soil and I hear it's doing well it sounds like a good recovery strategy certainly yeah yes (laughs) but going back I want to go back to what you said about garden being political and visceral and important because you wrote about that, didn't you, in terms of women and their gardens and how women originally were kept out of the horticultural industries and had to find their way into them via exploration and the fact that they were fortunate to have the opportunity to travel. Yeah, it's a combination of uh, often privilege, uh, the first women who were able to break down those gender barriers. I mean the overwhelming majority of them were white, they were wealthy, they were educated or they had access to education and they had rich husbands with whom they could travel to, to you know, go and explore and become plants people themselves. However, um, it shouldn't kind of be underestimated that society was really not in the business and, and the entire scientific kind of establishment that grew up around botany just didn't admit women. So... I still think even now there is a real gender gap in gardening. You know, with garden design, for instance, the vast majority of people who graduate from design courses are female. But if you looked at the number of women winning gold medals at Chelsea, it is dwarfed by the number of men winning medals at Chelsea. So there's still, you know, there's still a glass ceiling in gardening, which is 
bonkers to me, but also lots of other ways that gardening has been used politically beyond. I do write a lot about um, women gardeners because the, the book is very much about my own discovery of my womanhood um, and feminism runs quite the way through it. But gardening is also something that people have used to deal with grief and trauma and gardening is relevant to the AIDS crisis and gardening is relevant to gentrification and it's relevant to reclaiming land in all sorts of situations. So I think it's one of the greatest underestimations or misconceptions about gardening is that it's sort of polite. There's nothing polite about it. Um, I think people try to make it very soft, but the inherent act of it, I think, is is of intervention. It's of sticking your hands into the soil. There's a power to it. That leads me on to thinking about what we learned from our gardens, because I know from my own experience is I learn hugely about my own tendencies. So, for instance, probably talked about this before, procrastination, not knowing exactly what I want to do and therefore not doing anything. Uh, I learned that viscerally. It felt like a visceral experience last year with calendula. Calendula seedlings in their nine centimetre pots, having grown from seeds, not quite knowing where I wanted to put them in my new veg patch and therefore not putting them anywhere. Having put a few out, I just sat on, kept watering, kept looking at the ones in the greenhouse for loves. And of course, they never recovered. Eventually, I put them out, but they never took their space the same way as the ones that hadn't been stuck in their pots and become root bound. And I realized I actually have to do, even if I'm going to make mistakes. You t- we talked about this before we came on the call, that idea of learning through mistakes, didn't we? And trying again. And Yeah, and I think, so the main thing it has taught me is patience. I'm quite an impulsive person, I'm quite a decisive person, and I expect that of other people around me, which makes me quite difficult to be with. But I also have very high expectations of myself, which is why I find gardening really therapeutic, for want of a better word, because there are only so many expectations you can have of a garden. And also, you have to wait for those results to show themselves. So, you know, you know, your every act that you make out there is an investment in the ultimate result, and all of it is an act of hope. And so, you're, for someone who spent, I have spent my entire life kind of to the equation of put this much effort in, and you will get the best result out. It doesn't really work with gardening, like you will you can you can you know what you get in and get out is somehow uh, related but you can't stop a cold snap in may and you cannot stop a heat wave in june and if a harvest is going to go to seed too soon you can't really do much about that and on the flip side you also something can spring back to life and flower and bloom quite miraculously without any input from you at all And I found both of those notions so deeply reassuring to be able to have this space where to simply watch it took not only time, but also gave great pleasure. And that was kind of one of the first instances of something working in that way in my life. You wrote about that in the book, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much. Was it a cosmos or...? Well, there was a a cosmos was um, a plant that... I ended up, I I sowed from seed the last summer. I was on the balcony before I had to leave. 
And for those listeners who are unaware of the book, it's essentially about an unexpected life event taking place, which led to a string of things happening um, in which I realised I wasn't really very satisfied with everything I'd worked to try and achieve and, and, and how I started to rewire my life by learning things from the garden, I suppose. And so the cosmos was something that I sowed and spent all summer growing. And then when I had to leave the balcony in September, the, it, the cosmos had come just into bloom. And, and you know what? I cut those flowers and I put them in a vase for the next person who was moving in and put it on the table. I, and that kind of summed it up. It was like, I've grown this and I, I've only just seen it flower. And that's fine. That's fine. Like, let it be. And I, and I, I found it such a release to be able to do that to be able to say, look, I've, I've achieved what I've wanted and I'm not even relishing in it, it's for somebody else. I'm able to step away from it. it was actually very helpful. That let it be is very powerful, isn't it? It was something that I very much had to learn. <laughs> yeah, I, I dug up a, um, I planted a little area in on the, alongside my veg bed because I wanted something more ornamental from the kitchen window. And I planted a euphorbia. I mean, now thinking about it, I'm not sure what I was thinking, but I planted <laughs> euphorbia caracias. Do you know the one I mean? Possibly. I'm not very good with the Latin. I know what a euphorbia would look some, like, yeah. yeah a big round bush yeah. with the green. I Bright green, beautiful, under, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Under what was a very immature rhubarb plant. Right. <laughs> Um, of course, this year, the one that I planted at the other end is enormous and waving to the sunshine. And the one under the rhubarb was shriveled and not very happy. And I moved it about, I don't know, six weeks ago or something. And I look at it every day and I think, oh, I'm so sorry, you poor thing. And you'll be fine next year. Yeah. And if it isn't, what have you lost, really? Also, euphoria spreads like crazy so you're going to have another one. one no no you're thinking of amygdaloides which is the oh one yes yeah no this one has clumps and then kind of stays there right okay um, yeah it's not that one so before we came on the call we had a little chat about design didn't we and how you how you view it and what where you use it and I liked your distinction between design with a capital d without it yes yeah, so in my mind, design with a capital D is very much what you go and look at Chelsea for. And it's the stuff that fills glossy coffee table books. And it's it, in my mental mind's eye now, it's kind of those sort of rather over pruned box balls and hard landscaping and extravagant water features. And then there's the sort of smaller C design, which I think a lot of us would not, not even call design necessarily because it's just how we operate in our gardens but I think a bit like interior design versus what how you choose to decorate your house they the two are related and and I do think one seems scary and the other one not but I'm more thinking that if you are the kind of person who's like oh I want to interior design my house that might seem far more scary than say I want to decorate my house but also true in what you say that interiors seem accessible because we've always We've been raised in houses, so we know how to decorate them to a certain extent. Whereas we're not raised to design gardens. We're not even raised to my generation, I argue, in Rootbound, weren't even raised to engage with gardens very much. Mm. So, you know, most people ask me things like, what do I grow? Not realising that that in itself is a design question. <laughs> Where do you start that one? 
Yes, I know. I normally ask a few questions back at them. But uh, of course, it's a design question. And I, and in, in the balcony, firstly, I think like good design comes a lot from number one, either being trained in it, but even then learning from your mistakes. And uh, the beauty of container gardening, which is what I do on the balcony, is that you can always shuffle things around. But over the years, I have picked up a few thing bits of design knowledge here and there and what I love about garden design and it is actually quite similar to good interior design in that practicality kind of has to come first in terms of how you use your space and what you want from it yeah yeah absolutely I want to in fact move your table around yes yeah when you were I think the lockdown was happening yeah you were going to work outside sometimes and needed to make that a more practical space exactly so the balcony was very much like you lit in it had a chair out there but realistically no one could sit out there the whole thing was just covered in plants um and then lockdown happened and there was a very real uh notion and as it came to pass that two uh admittedly small adults but nevertheless two adults were going to have to spend all day every day working and living together in a one bedroom flat. And so I was like, we're gonna have to turn the balcony into a workspace. And so, yeah, I moved from, you know, if you came out there, it it doesn't ostensibly look that different, but crucially there is now room for two people to sit out there and work. And that's all due to always having a table which doubles up as a potting shed, but it's like a vintage melamine table that folds out. And so I've always used that as like an adjustable space and for different purposes. But yeah, it's it's a case of having to prioritise working desk space over plants in that instance, or or rather a compost situation. But no, I think, I mean, a lot of design, you know, people say, oh, lovely things about the balcony, like, oh, it's such a green oasis. And it's like, it's not actually that clever. It's You get the biggest containers you can, and you fill them with the tallest things you can, and you use the space around you. Because if you've only got five square metres of ground space you've probably got the same again upwards on your walls and on your ends so you need to utilize those you need to utilize your window boxes you need to think about getting the same plants through to have some sort of order in this tiny space so yeah I mean as for what would happen if I were to have a considerable amount of space like a garden it would be a whole nother kettle of fish I'm sure I'd have plenty to learn well, you'd do the same thing, though, wouldn't you? You'd think about, what do I love? Mm. I'd have to do some research and dig a little bit to discover what it is you love most. And you'd think about the practicalities. Where's the sun? Where's the shade? What do I like to sit in? What do I prefer? Do I want a bit of both so I can have a morning cup of tea in the sunshine in the morning and a glass of wine in the evening you'll just have more options yeah I think that's true I've already like it's exactly following what you're saying yeah where does the sun come where you know I know the the other thing about the balcony is that it's a shade garden because it's completely overlooked by trees so to go back to having the option of some exposure would be quite nice (laughs) having grown up I've become quite adept in woodland planting schemes Oh, they're easier, though. I think woodland planting is easier than sunny planting, personally. I agree with you. on texture and structure, and you can't rely on the flowers like you do in the sunshine, or like a lot of people do in the sunshine. It also really looks after itself, um, I think. A bit of deadheading and, and decrisping and a bit of chopping back, but 
no, I really love woodland plants. So yeah, I would take a shade garden over something terribly exposed any day. But it would be nice to have a bit of sunshine. Like, you know, it's sweet peas are my favourites and I just can't grow them here. Yes. They are troublesome though. Oh, there's such a lot of effort. <laughs> there's such a lot of like, effort. On the TP that keeps falling over. Oh yeah, especially in this wind. Yeah. 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 But I have got I've got three I think it's Earl Grey. I got them from Grace Alexander. Um, Earl Grey flowers so far. And well, I probably cut them, but I'm not ready to cut them yet. It's always that tussle, isn't it? It's, um, Absolutely. Admire on the plant or admire in the vase. Exactly, exactly. Oh, so do you? Do you take flowers? Well, you said you cut your cosmos, but that was because you were leaving. Because I was leaving. Um, do I cut? Yeah, well, yes and no. I tend to I tend to forage more than cut, or I will make the most of of the things that I deadhead. So I tend to harvest. I tend to display what I've deadheaded. So things like heuchera flowers, for instance, I think gorgeous dried. I also actually really like foliage. So often, if I've got something that's very abundant, then I, I'm you know I will take foliage and display that in a vase and. I'm definitely one of those people that if I was, um, if I had an allotment, which in London is kind of a ludicrous notion, I would grow flowers there rather than vegetables because they're just more expensive. <laughs> and I long for cut flowers. And I, I do have a bit of a habit with my local florist who only supplies British grown flowers. So yeah, I love them. But I put it this way, I've already kind of started a wish list on Peter Nivens for um for whenever I get a bed to plant a lot of tulips in. Like, yeah, I would love to be able to cut flowers. Yeah, and you need to have a lot... Well, I think you have to have a dedicated cut flower bed for tulips because I can never bear to cut them out of my borders. I always think I'm going to be able to, and I can't. I'm always quite impressed with the people who can because they look so amazing. And if they're in the right place, they will... They last, is the thing. They last far longer in the bed than they will in the vase. Exactly. So why take them inside? Much better to buy them from a, from a flower grower who grows in England. Yes, exactly. And then everybody wins. Although what I have, the thing I most recently cut, um, I have uh, some redwood sorrel growing here out of a trough, which I love. And I know it's a controversial statement because I know a lot of people think it's a pernicious weed and it can be. But um, the whole thing is edible. So I recently, it's got bright yellow flowers and sort of purple oxalis-y kind of... Yeah, I've got it in my path. Right. You can eat the whole thing. So I topped uh, a chocolate cake with some yesterday. With the flowers? Yeah, the flowers and the leaves. And the leaves. They're lovely. Yeah, just to jazz it up a bit. I more often cut to eat, so I grow a lot of edible flowers. So I'd rather um, stick them in a salad or a cake than have them in a vase. So where does gardening come in relation to chocolate cake? Oh, I don't know. I've only st- the thing is I didn't bake for a long time. I grew up in a house r- rich in baking. Oh, how lucky. I know there was cake every day when I got home from school. It's amazing we weren't the size of a house. But well that's probably why you weren't the size of a house. Possibly. You didn't need to go foraging for it. Yeah, my mum reasoned that she'd rather we came home and ate things that she knew what'd gone into them than um, than otherwise so anyway we had cake and I think it was around the time that I started sort of trying to write a book while holding down a nine-to-five and sort of running a relatively demanding 
I guess, Instagram account slash garden writing career that I sort of eradicated the time needed for baking out of my life. And I'd not done it for quite a long time. I just like work and writing and words came in place. But Hmm. lockdown does strange things to us all, Sarah. What can I say? So my daughter's become a baker. There we go. Is it sourdough she's making? No, she's making cake (laughs) and chocolate cookies and yesterday rhubarb crumble from the aforesaid rhubarb oh brilliant but she was reading nigella the other day and nigella was writing something about baking is the perfect combination of taking control having a sense of purpose mindfulness and there being something lovely at the end uh, yeah so that's what she's discovering she's discovering her domestic goddess qualities I've which we're benefiting from actually yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was a miserable afternoon yesterday and I have seeds to sow, but it was baking a cake and listening to Sandy Denny was a delightful way to spend a rather miserable afternoon. Absolutely. So are you a fair weather gardener? No, I'm not. You're a pyjama gardener, I know that, because you read about being pyjama. Oh yeah, definitely a pyjama gardener, very much dawn to dusk. Like, I don't, I, I think there's only been maybe one year that I've not been hastily shoving like tulip bulbs in the ground after sunset by the light mm-hmm. of my iPhone children like, uh, grabbing whatever time I can get because yeah say nine to five and various other things that actually it's only really during lockdown that I've been able to offer as much sustained time to the balcony that I would ideally like to all year you know all the time but not a fair with the garden in fact because the balcony has rain cover because of upstairs it's actually so delightful to garden and when you have one of those really good rains those really fresh spring rains because you can smell it and you're kind of among it but you're not being rained on and that is I mean that's just petrichor which is a smell I'm thinking of I'm trying to find that word petrichor exactly which is injected right into your veins pretty much it's incredible which is the scent that is uh produced on the earth after a good rainstorm isn't it very much and it has been scientifically proven to de-stress that smell so it's a very lovely thing I do like it out there when it rains and and I find it quite invigorating actually like I used to go to the community garden in the depth of winter and there's something very satisfying about being outside when not many other people are um, making peace with the earth in intolerable conditions there's it's um no I'm not a fair weather gardener yeah, I'm thinking about that, making peace with the earth in intolerable conditions. There's something there, isn't there, about what we were talking about before, coping with what is thrown at you and how gardening is teaching us to do that, to make lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, and just um, I th- the whole thing for me is... I get a great deal of reassurance and comfort from connecting with the earth and being outside. And so often I'll start gardening or I'll go out in a bad mood and I'll sort of force myself out that door. And if I don't have something to do, I'll just stand and look and breathe. And then soon enough, you'll find something to do. And I always end up feeling better. There's a strange compulsion to it. It's it's a rare day that I don't go out on the balcony. And when I have, when it's been a while, you know, maybe it's been later in the day and I go out, it's like, why haven't you been out here before? It's really great. Like, there's always something to look at or do. I, yes, I know that. I have a lovely woodland nearby, 
Um, and I seem to be as obsessed with the woodland as I am with my garden. In fact, I'm plotting as to how I could create a woodland in my garden because my garden is up for some restructuring. We haven't been here that long and it's not exactly how I want it. And I always think, why did I not come earlier? How did I... I'm exactly the same with the woodland outside my house. Yeah, I've been really connecting with it during lockdown because it's literally, I mean, it's the trees that I look at from where I'm talking to you, but also like I walk out the door and I'm in the woodland in 30 seconds and I'm just like, why did it take me so long to do this on a daily basis? Yeah, because actually with it's 30 seconds away, you could start the day doing that. Yes, quite, exactly. (laughs) And the days when I do start the day doing that are amazing. Then there's reading and there's yoga and there's all these other things. So So I was going to ask you what you've been up to in terms of writing lately, because I know you've got something. Yes, I've been writing lots of things. Uh, Writers do tend to do that. But um, I, yes, you're right. I have been working on a a somewhat surprise, surprising in many ways project. It's a a new audio book. It's called Seeds from Scratch. And it's... um, it's a relatively novel concept. It's a it's an audio book that you garden along to. So it's really for the kind of the rank beginners out there or people who want a bit of a helping hand. And over the course of four chapters and about 90 minutes, which you kind of come back to as you go along, I talk you through sowing your seeds and raising a plant. And in between, while you're doing that, I give a few reflections on the sensory nature of gardening and how to notice more with gardening. So how to enjoy the well-being benefits in a very um, conscious way to make a choice to notice your senses whilst you're involved in that activity. Very, very much. Yeah, exactly. Well, that sounds nice. That sounds lovely. I hope so. It's been quite fun. It's been, um, yeah, it's, it's all sort of, it's sort of landed and then departed very swiftly and and I, you know, had the experience of recording it in my living room, surrounded by cushions, which was novel. And we'll have to see how it goes down. It's been what's been so interesting to notice is how many people are sowing seeds for the first time, which has been delightful. You know, I think they've said that there's been more seeds sold in the last six weeks than ever since the war or something. Like because people just want to grow things, and I, I think that's such an interesting outcome of this entire horrible pandemic situation that people's instinct is to grow things which is amazing yeah it it will be interesting to see I mean obviously I'm clearly someone who's whose tentative adventures in gardening really took over their life in quite a significant way I do it's quite funny really I remember with my first book which is called how to grow stuff and it's a real another beginner's guide to gardening right at the beginning meeting my the editor said you know this book won't change your life it's not going to be a life-changing thing and I, I'd agree with her the book didn't really change my her life my life but um everything else around it kind of did in quite an uncanny way and it would be really nice to think that actually maybe this is something that connects thousands if not millions of people to the ground in a way that they haven't been able to access before. Absolutely and I'm Yeah, I'm thinking about my own journey into gardening because I was also someone, I was in a very different situation to you at the same sort of age um, in that I already had two children, having got married at 21 and really, really finding that difficult, having had postnatal depression, 
husband who worked away too much, was in New York too much, and trying to get gardening. But then a friend suggested that we did a course. In fact, the course was when Hannah was one, she's now 29. Um, and the course turned out, it was a day course, turned out to be a city and guilds in general horticulture. And I don't even remember asking what it was going to be before saying, yep, I'm going to do that. Because it meant that I could have a day to be myself without a baby and a bag and all of that and actually go back to my own sense of me. And that's where my journey with gardening and gardens and plants and design all started, which was life-changing completely. Mm. And it would be amazing if that happened. But even a tiny handful of people who decided to grow things during this lockdown we can hope yes well I'm sure it will I'm sure it, and it is it's happening all the time there's lots of us who are completely obsessed and passionate about our gardens and plants aren't there oh well, it's been really lovely chatting yes it's been great thank you for having me on well thank you for coming on Gosh, that was such a lovely conversation and I do hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Alice's book is called Rootbound, Rewilding a Life and is available at all good bookshops as well as online. The show notes, where I'll share details of everything we mentioned in today's conversation, are at www.growthfully.co.uk and you can find both Alice and me on Instagram. Alice is at Nauticulture and I'm at Growthfully. And we'd love to hear your comments on our conversation. Please use the hashtag MyGardenMyLifePodcast so I can spot them. And if you'd like to leave a review for the podcast, I'd really be thrilled. I do a happy dance every time I read one. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day.